Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. In his book, Clean Ear and Good Jobs, U.S. Labor and the Struggle for Climate Justice, published by Temple University Press in 2023, Todd Vashon examines the labor climate movement and demonstrates what can be envisioned and accomplished when climate justice is on labor's agenda and unions work together with other social movements to formulate bold solutions to the climate crisis. Todd Vashan is Assistant Professor of Labor Studies and Employment Relations and Director of the Labor Education Action Research Network at Rutgers University. I'm so glad his new book has brought him to our program. Welcome. Thanks, Alman. So to get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this work? Sure. I think I could really date it back to um, 1989 when I was 13 years old. There were really two pivotal, uh, pivotal events in my life that year. Um, one of them was uh, my family owned a small business at the time. We were in a small general store gas station, um, and we were really struggling financially and facing bankruptcy. Um, when my dad, through the volunteer fire department, through his friends in the volunteer fire department, was able to get into the carpenters union. Um, and we really had this transformation of our of our household finances when he became a union member and a union carpenter. And we really were uplifted from being a you know working poor family struggling to being in the middle class with health insurance and braces. And I was getting you know new sneakers and new school clothes. Um, but also that same year, 1989, was when we learned about global warming in science class in eighth grade. You know. Um, Mr. Hansen went before Congress and made his speech from NASA about the, the global warming effect, the greenhouse effect, and we learned about it in school that year. Um, so those kind of set me on two paths, really. In my mind, I had always enjoyed nature and the environment because I grew up in a rather rural area. Um, and then with my dad's transition to the union, I really understood the value and importance of union jobs. So as I became a teenager and a young adult, I always worked in, in unionized settings, um, became a union carpenter myself. And uh, ended up going back to college in 2008 when the Great Recession hit because I was facing a long period of unemployment also, like many other Americans at that time, Um, and discovered uh, this thing called labor education while I was in college. Um, Got Ended up with a PhD, which was not really the goal, but ended up there. (laughs) there, I discovered a passion for research and writing and teaching. Um, But, you know, an interesting side story there. So when we were in college, this was the first time I had a job that was not a unionized job. I was a graduate teaching assistant, so teaching the same classes that the professors do for about one-fifth of the the salary, right? Um, So a few of us got together and said we wanted to do something about our working conditions, and we actually organized a new local of the United Auto Workers there. Um, I had the privilege and honor of serving as the first local union president. Um, and that was really the point at which I started when the rubber meets the road, right? Um, as a union president, I now had this this responsibility of engaging with the broader labor movement and uh, manifesting our members' demands. So we were polling our members about what their issues were, what their concerns were. And one of the big issues that kept rising to the top all the time was climate change, right? So this is in you know, 2014, 2015. And it's graduate school. So there's a lot of actual scientists that are pursuing PhDs and things like climate science and biology and environmental science. So we had folks that were really concerned with this. So as a union leader, 
I reached out and looked around the labor movement and I started to find that there were these blue green formations where environmental groups and unions would come together uh, and think about ways that they could find common ground to promote what, what would ultimately become the title of my book, Clean Air and Good Jobs. So that's just kind of a long way around to saying uh, I, I kind of organically fell into this um, backwards just from where I was and where I started. <laughs> very neat, very neat. Um, so speaking of the climate, uh, what occurred on November 13, 2018, that is significant for the story of labor climate activism? Can you give me a reminder? <laughs> Sorry. There's so much information. So this has to do with, with uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi's office. Okay. <laughs> There's just Sorry so many specific that. dates. Of course, of course. Sorry okay, yeah. So you're referring to the moment at which the, uh, the Sunrise Movement and the Youth uh, Movement for Climate um, Action went and occupied Nancy Pelosi's office and really made a demand for a Green New Deal, right, to create good green jobs that would, um, you know, phase out fossil fuels and make a more sustainable economy, but to do it in a way that we have, you know, good paying union jobs that are doing this. Um, and the point that I make really in the, in the beginning of the book is that this idea of a Green New Deal started many, many years before that, that pivotal moment, right? That was the moment when the idea of a Green New Deal was really put on the national stage politically and, and in the media. But, um, you know, there had been labor activists dating back to at least 2008, 2009, who embraced this idea of taking the New Deal, which, you know, FDR was famous for having the New Deal, which created a lot of the labor laws and social protections that we have in the United States, um, and applying it to the transition from fossil fuels to green energy as a way to, you know, shift our economy to be more sustainable and make sure we have good jobs along the way. So, uh, you know, I make the argument that really the work of those activists within their unions in the early 2000s and leading up to that point um, is is what, you know, was the precursor to what was would become the struggle for a Green New Deal that we see now. Right. And so to give listeners who maybe uh, are not so familiar with this history, to give them a little sense of the landscape that you explore in your book, how did unions respond to the Green New Deal legislation that um, uh, that Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Murkey um, introduced in February 2019? Yeah. So that initial resolution actually drew completely different responses from different elements of the labor movement, right? So we saw right away many of the construction unions, we call them the building trades unions in the U.S., um, came out against it. Um, they were concerned about the, the loss of energy sector jobs that many of their members were employed in in the fossil fuel industry. But on the flip side, we saw a lot of unions like the Service Employees International Union and the American Federation of Teachers Union come out in support of it because from their perspective, their members are struggling and suffering under the consequences of climate change. Um, particularly with the SEIU, it's a very diverse union and a lot of their members in the service industry are you know, lower income workers from communities of color, which if you, you know, study environmental justice at all, you can see that the impacts of climate change always tend to hit those sorts of communities first and worst. Right, and uh, just to, to, to be clear here, uh, um... The unions that opposed the Green New Deal, do you feel that they had any justification for doing so? You know, was there any sort of legitimacy in their opposition to the this new um, kind of vision for how um, um, 
uh, the U.S. government would deal with fossil, the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, um, this is really where the, the politics comes in and the history comes in. Um, absolute justification for it, if you think about how the U.S. government has um, helped or not helped workers in previous transitions, right? The government has not a great has not had a great track record of actually providing what, what we call now a just transition. Um, you know, the programs around free trade that they created were, you know, very underfunded, very weak, very difficult to get approval for the benefits from them. So a lot of workers had a sour taste in their mouth from the deindustrialization of the 70s and 80s and envisioned that the, you know, the green transition would just be a repeat of that where the good jobs go away and what we're left with is bad jobs that don't have union protections. Um, but the Green New Deal, on the other hand, what, what that puts forward is a vision of having more of a role for the government and taxation in the economy, more of a Keynesian or social democratic type of um, economic model that you would see in Europe. Uh, so the question really is, how feasible is that at this political moment in the country? Um, and you know, some unions were getting behind and fighting for it, and others said, that's just not going to happen. We need to protect our members. Right. Right. And um, what impact did Hurricane Sandy and Hurricane Ida have on unions thinking regarding climate justice? Oh, a really big impact, especially with those unions whose members were really suffering from it. You know, in New York City, the Transportation Workers Union, the subway and bus operators, they were really hit hard by it. Um, A lot of their members are also living in the frontline communities and the coastal area of Coney Island and other parts of Queens and, and Brooklyn where the storm came through and just, you know, devastated their homes, um, made their their jobs incredibly dangerous and difficult. You know, a lot of those workers were down there for weeks pumping the water out of the subways to try and make transportation functional again for everybody else. So it was a real eye-opener, right, the, the experience of the climate catastrophe. And, you know, unlike previous, we've had hurricanes and things in the past, but it's taken a long time of, uh, you know, the increasing frequency and intensity of them for people to start to make the connection between the dots that geez, the storm is not necessarily caused by climate change, but the likelihood of it and the intensity of it are increased because of climate change. Um, so yeah, those storms were really a kind of turning point. Right. And your book focuses on what you call the labor climate movement. What exactly does that consist of? Right. So what I discovered when I went into this and I went into it with with an open mind and and no background knowledge. Right. And I just went out and I participated in a number of organizations and I observed what activists were doing and saying. Um, And what I came to realize is that there was a movement of climate activists within the labor movement. So it's a movement within a movement, if you will. Um, And these are individual members or maybe activist leaders at the local level who are trying to make their unions take a more progressive stance on climate change, to be more proactive. So instead of reacting when there's going to be a plant shut down because of uh, you know some climate-related issue, thinking forward about what's the policy we can have to phase out fossil fuels in a way that the workers are protected and insured good jobs on the other side of it. So the labor climate movement is is those workers within unions that have that concern, but also it overlaps a lot with the with the climate justice movement. Right, which is a more community-facing movement of um, particularly people of color that are concerned about the disparate impacts of environmental racism historically, but also the future impacts of climate change as it continues to unfold. So the overlap there of, of the labor activists with the climate justice activists has really created what I call the labor climate movement. 
Right. And could you just take a minute to to briefly describe, uh, you mentioned the term environmental racism. So for mm. people who are not familiar, just what does that refer to? Sure. So the environmental racism is referring to the the history of the the placement of polluting facilities in particular neighborhoods, in particular geographic regions within the country that are were overwhelmingly low income or communities of color. And a lot of that happened, um, you know, the environmental justice mo- movement arose because they saw that the traditional uh, environmental movement, what we call the big green movement, uh, would often fight to not have these polluting facilities built in their in their localities, right? We call it not in my backyard uh, struggles or NIMBY would be the acronym. And what a lot of those NIMBY struggles, you know, waged by generally middle-class white folks in affluent communities, what they led to was not the cancellation of the construction of polluting facilities, but just the, the relocation of them to be built in places where there was less political organization and, and less income and less affluence. So environmental racism is the history of that, um, you know, overexposure of the pollution burden to communities of color. Um, another piece of it too is, has to do with just the overall uh, structural racism in the U.S. economy around hiring and, dis- and discrimination in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond, where a lot of times uh, workers of color would not get equal access to those jobs in the industry that often turned out to be very well-paying jobs because they were unionized. Um, or when they did, they would only get the most dangerous and dirty jobs there. So those are the two kind of aspects of environmental racism that are pertinent here. Right, right. And you talk about the major pillars of support uh, for the current fossil fuel regime. Who are or what, what components of our society are the main supports for the fossil fuel uh, industry? Yeah, I point to a number of them. And, you know, we, of course, have individual consumers. As individual consumers, we have this fossil fuel economy for so long that we're reliant and dependent upon gasoline for our vehicles. Of course, we have electric vehicles now beginning to you know, take a bigger share in the market. But for a very long time, the price of gas is something that everybody can equally complain about. Democrat, Republican, independent, when the price of gas goes up, everybody's upset with the politicians, right? So there's this built-in pillar of support for having a steady stream of inexpensive gasoline, right? Um, another piece of it is the politicians in, in states that are really... Um, reliant on fossil fuel extraction or, or production as a part of their economy, those politicians are, of course, you know, receiving campaign contributions from the industry and are not going to take steps that are needed to protect the climate and create a, a safe, livable climate for the future. Um, obviously, one of the biggest ones is the, the industries themselves. So the, you know, the fossil fuel industry itself does not want to go away. It wants to continue to make profit off of every last drop of oil that they can extract out of the ground until there's none left. Um, and then the one that I really focus on in our book is, is the workers who rely on jobs in these industries. Um, and again, you know, the, the, the industry has been unionized for a very long time. So the, the pay scale in a lot of the fossil fuel jobs is, is a lot higher than the jobs you see in, say, the service economy or other areas of the economy. And the fear is that with the new renewable jobs coming on, many of them being like rooftop solar installers are not paying nearly as much or providing the generous benefits that the union contracts in the fossil fuel industry have been able to win over generations, decades and decades and decades of, of union activism. 
Right. And uh, uh, historically, what has been the relationship between labor unions and environmental issues in the United States? So it's actually a very interesting history. Um, some historians, and I would agree with them, would, would point to the fact that the, the labor movement is really part of the precursor to the modern environmental movement. There's always been conservationism, you know, environmental activism around protecting wild areas, creating national parks and wilderness preserves. But it was really in the, in the mid 20th century when we started to have those concerns around the uh, human impacts of pollution on communities and on workers. And those early struggles were waged by labor unions. You know, the United Steelworkers and the United Auto Workers were some of the first people to come out and connect the dots between environmental pollution and the health impacts on their members right so their community uh, their communities are surrounding their workplaces and when the pollution comes out of those smokestacks at night and it's you know coming over the community where they live um there becomes a real concern there so the modern environmental movement of course brings those two together conservation and uh you know human health but the labor movement really was was the precursor to that to put the human health question on the table all right and you talk about the difference between job consciousness and class con- consciousness. What is the difference between these two things? Sure. So job consciousness is really, you're thinking about what it takes to protect and preserve your job. I have this job and it's a good job. Um, <clears throat> if this job's going to go away, I, I need to fight like heck to save this job. Whereas a class consciousness is thinking more about what are the jobs that we have for all of us and why do those other jobs not pay as much? What can we do to ensure that all of the jobs pay good jobs so that I don't have to get locked into uh, competing with fellow workers over a small number of relatively good jobs in an ocean of uh, otherwise not good jobs? Right, right. And uh, um, what is the labor climate spectrum and what does it tell us about the labor climate movement's goals and tactics? I came up with this idea of a spectrum because as I was out there participating and, and going to different meetings and rallies and um, events, that there were unions that were always at the forefront and leading and being proactive on climate issues. And that was often the healthcare and the nurses unions, the public sector unions and the education unions. Um, and then the other unions that would be really oppositional towards taking action on climate change, often some of the construction unions, of course, the mine workers union. Um, and I just started to look at their statements and what their public stance was on issues and realized that there's this spectrum ranging from what I call the jobs versus the environment perspective on one side of the spectrum to the clean air and good jobs um, perspective on the other end of the spectrum. So the unions on the clean air and good jobs were saying we can fight to transform our economy to be sustainable and make good new jobs. The unions on the other side were saying we have good jobs and the green jobs are not good jobs. So if we protect the environment, we're going to lose the good jobs. Right. Right. And how do labor climate uh, movement activists define the problem they're confronting? Well, they see, you know, climate as a worker issue, right? The impacts of climate change are going to impact workers both on the job and in their communities. Um, already for construction workers that work outside, we have, you know, an increasing number of high heat days. So heat exhaustion, dehydration, those kind of issues are impacting our jobs. Um, if you're in the public sector, you're reliant on um, 
taxation and public funding to pay for the services that your your um, department provides to the public. But if we keep having all of these catastrophes that are sucking up all of the tax dollars to repair uh, after catastrophes, and there's there's less and less money to to fund education and other public services. Um, if you're an air in the airline industry, right, we have concerns about those high heat days, the planes can't take off, increased turbulence. So really the impact of climate change on workers is is tremendous, both in their jobs and then also as as community members where they live and reside. Right, right. And um, you mentioned before this idea of a just transition, something that was socially just when we make a transition away from fossil fuels. Um, uh, In your book, you describe three different frames of this idea of a just transition. What are those uh, three frames and how do they differ uh, among each other? Sure. Maybe just a little bit for your listeners first. The idea of a just transition originates with a man by the name of Tony Mazaki, who was a union leader in the United States in the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union. And he started to see this in the 70s, that there was going to be a pitting of environmentalists against you know, industrial unionists around the idea of, of protecting the environment. Um, so he wanted to envision a way that we could undermine that and and produce both good jobs and a healthy environment, right? It wasn't climate change yet at that time, but it was this this notion of environmental protection versus good jobs. Um, so I arrive in the scene in the mid 2000s and I'm out there participating and I'm hearing this phrase just transition everywhere and, and everybody's acknowledging that it originates with Tony Mizaki. But as I'm tuning into what people are saying, I'm realizing that not everybody has the same idea of what a just transition is. So after taking lots of notes diligently and coding my data and and then analyzing it, I realized that there were really three distinct usages of it, um, which I call protective, proactive, and transformative. So the protective frame is really just about creating a social safety net of protections for workers when they lose their jobs as a result of environmental policy that we need to protect the whole of us, right? So we need to shut down this particular plant because of its pollution. Those workers are going to lose their jobs. We need to give them wage replacement. We need to ensure they have health insurance. We need to give them job retraining. And we need to find them uh, employment that's comparable to what they had before. So we're protecting those workers um, because they shouldn't have to bear the burden of the transition that's beneficial for all of us, right? They've been doing the dirty, often dangerous jobs of powering the entire economy, right? You know, digging up coal, processing fossil fuels, climbing up power lines, lots of very dangerous jobs to ensure that the rest of us could all do our jobs that may be less dangerous and maybe more comfortable at home at our computers, right? So we should protect those workers uh, at the very least while we make a transition. Now, the idea of a proactive one were people saying, yes, we have to do that, but we also know we have to address climate change. We can't just sit around and wait for things to happen and then react. We need to be proactive. We should develop a plan that will systematically phase out fossil fuels over a period of time, provide those protections for the workers along the way, and create good new green jobs for them to go into. So it's a lot of industrial planning and thinking ahead as opposed to just having a safety net in response to job loss, right? And then the third one is the more radical vision, really. And this was a lot of folks that were participating um, kind of at the international level and working with unions across borders to discuss just transition. And the transformative frame 
the the kind of slogan of it is system change, not climate change, because the underlying argument in this in this frame is that it is capitalism itself. It's the nature of capitalism as an economic system that drives both the exploitation of the environment and the exploitation of labor. And if we're going to truly have, you know, good jobs and clean air for everyone, we need to envision a different economic model that's not driven entirely by profit, because those decisions based on based on making profit are always going to lead to um, bottom line assessment. How can we, you know, get the most out of workers for the least amount of money? How can we get the most natural resources uh, used with the least amount of overlay? Right, right. Um, and then you also talk about the oppositional uh, frame. Uh, what is that exactly? Yeah, so these are the folks, we talked on this a little bit earlier uh, in the labor movement that see just transition as kind of like uh, rainbows and the Easter bunny or, or just a fairy tale because the U.S. <laughs> government has not ever delivered anything meaningful in this area before. So they are opposed to the idea of even using the phrase just transition. Um, the president of the AFL-CIO at the time, Richard Trumka, the AFL-CIO is the um, big union confederation in the U.S. at the national level. So the president of that organization referred to just transition as a fancy funeral, uh, you know, su suggesting that wow. it was just like putting a little packaging and, and bows around essentially what would just be the elimination of good jobs and then the replacement of them with not good jobs. So that's really what the oppositional frame represents. Right, right. And what tactics did the organizations you studied use to achieve their goals? So there were various tactics, and a lot of it had to do with the different level that these organizations were operating at. So some of the more you know local organizations would do a lot of organizing, um, doing rallies and protests locally, doing educational materials, bringing together climate activists and, and labor leaders together to get to know each other and build those relationships and find the common ground. Um, at more of the state and national level, there was work around policy. So trying to get behind particular policy and maybe get the union to uh, pass resolutions to support uh, legislation, you know, like the American Federation of Teachers had a resolution to support the Green New Deal. Um, other unions brought different resolutions to their to their state and national bodies to try and, and push the union forward on this issue to be more proactive. Yeah, so the tactics ranged from your typical uh, political activism working through the system on down to more direct action and collective action and protesting um, and movement building at the grassroots level. Right, right. And how did the organizations you studied respond to shifts in the political landscape caused by the onset of the, for instance, the COVID-19 pandemic, the rise of the Black Lives Matter protest movement, and the defeat of, of Donald Trump in the 2020 presidential election? Yeah, so the landscape is constantly shifting, right? You can think of it as an opportunity structure. There's sometimes there's an opportunity down path A, but an election or or a pivotal historic event may happen. Now, path A doesn't seem like it's going to get you to where you want to go, but maybe path B opened up at this point. So we saw a lot of those changes, and we and we still continue to see those changes. The world is a pretty volatile place, <laughs> but um, you know, with, with the election of of Donald Trump, we saw that it really a lot of labor climate activists saw that closed down the the opportunity for trying to pursue 
labor climate action at the federal level. But they saw that different states, there, there was a variety of outcomes around gubernatorial and state um, legislative elections. So in some states where uh, more of a blue wave happened, right, there were an, a Democratic governor and a Democratic legislature were in place, uh, they shifted their attention and focus to trying to pass legislation at the state level that could do things like providing just transitions to, to workers. Um, and then we saw it flip back again once Biden was elected, right? There was a big resurgence of support for the Green New Deal. And then what became Biden's Build Back Better plan, a lot of the labor climate movement was behind the Build Back Better plan, which ended up kind of getting watered down to two smaller bills. We had the infrastructure bill, and then we had the um, Inflation Reduction Act, which are you know not nearly as ambitious as what the Green New Deal was. Um, but many in the labor climate movement saw it as a very important step forward. So got you know, fully behind it and are doing the work now of trying to make those bills be uh, effective on the ground. And particularly with the Inflation Reduction Act, a lot of the language in it is more about incentivizing good jobs than mandating good jobs. So there's particular tax incentives built into the law if, you know, green construction projects are using apprenticeship programs, which most construction companies with an apprenticeship program are unionized. So that's that's a, a one way of ensuring that you're going to have good union jobs. Um, another piece of it was providing um, a further tax subsidy if some of the a certain percentage of the materials used in the construction were from domestic, domestically sourced. So that supports local manufacturing and manufacturing unions in the U.S. But to take advantage of those, it's it's really um, the onus is on people locally to know that that benefit exists and to try to start projects locally to then receive the federal funding to support those those green projects. Right, right. And so bottom line, uh, has the labor climate movement had any successes in its goals of moving the labor movement to a more pro-climate position and forging support for just transition within public policy circles? I would say yes. Not as much as they would have liked, um, but they're still working on it, right? This is still a work in progress. But we're in a wildly different place right now in 2023 than we were when I started this in 2013. Um, the United Auto Workers are out on strike right now, as you and I are talking. And one of their major demands is a just transition. They're actually using the phrase just transition at the national level leadership, not the, not the local grassroots activists, but the president, Sean Fain, is saying we need a just transition for our workers as we switch to producing electric vehicles because it's going to be fewer jobs. There's less components to building electric vehicles. Um, and on the same note, we have the environmental and climate movement coming out and supporting those striking workers, even though they know this could slow down, slightly slow down the adoption of electric vehicles. But they've built enough solidarity there to say, we're willing to slow the rollout of EVs to ensure that workers get, get protections. And the workers are saying, we're willing to embrace electric vehicles because we know we need to save the climate, but we just need to do it in the way where our members are, are taken care of financially and economically. That's that's incredible. That's that's something that we had envisioned in 2013 as a dream in the future, and, and that's happening right now today as you and I talk. So yes, absolutely, the, those, those grassroots activists of the labor climate movement have been pushing the dial slowly and steadily um, for the past decade or more. Right, right, really remarkable. Um, what do you see as a possible futures for the labor climate movement and for the United States? 
So it's it's right now it's looking a little bit more positive than when I first got into this, right? I, I had envisioned like there's there's going to be the labor movement's just going to be completely opposed to uh, accepting climate protections, and then that's what I call the as the world burns future, <laughs> and that doesn't bode well for labor either because ultimately we're going to have to do something about climate change. It is inevitable. It's it's there. It's real. It's it's not fiction, right? Um, there's going to be a point where we absolutely have to stop burning fossil fuels. There's no doubt about it. Um, and if labor is an, an, uh, an impediment, a roadblock to us getting there sooner, then that doesn't bode well for the labor movement at all, right? You're not going to be on the forefront of social progress. You're going to be seen as a kind of reactionary blockage to us um, saving ourselves, right? Saving ourselves from ourselves. <laughs> um, then the second one I think about is kind of between a rock and a hard place where labor begins to embrace it a little bit, but doesn't take on enough of a proactive stance, right? They're just thinking about how can we have policies in place after the fact when our members lose their jobs? Um, and that's that's going to be a difficult one. That's the fancy funeral notion from Richard Trumka. Um, will the funding be there? Will the programs be well-funded? Um, and then the the more of a healthy, sustainable future outcome is is what I feel like we have the labor movement beginning to fight for now, as I mentioned with the UAW, but also the formation of jobs like the uh, for, uh, organizations like the National Climate Jobs Resource Center, which is setting up these organizations at different state levels to bring together labor groups to to be proactive on climate policy, which is exactly where labor should be on this. Because as I mentioned before, climate is a working class issue. It is a worker issue. And if the labor unions aren't out there fighting for the best package for workers, nobody's going to be doing it. Right, right. Well, there's so much to think about in your book, uh, but that's where we have to leave the discussion for today. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Thanks, Salman. Anytime. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.